Globally, COVID-19 has infected nearly 4 million people. Tragically, around 300,000 have died. Millions have lost their jobs. Airlines and businesses have gone to the wall. Economists believe we are on the edge of a deep recession. And we are just trying to make sense of these moments. What's next? What does the future hold? And can we know? Is there any hope? Welcome to Hope Awakens Part 3. Glad you've joined us again tonight or for the very first time. I'm Rebecca Bergen, one of your hosts in this amazing series. Wasn't that incredible prophecy we heard last night from the book of Daniel by John? If you missed it, then I'd encourage you to view it later on by going to the previous programs tab on our website, hopeawakens.com.au. I can assure you we're in for another amazing program from John tonight, titled The Unseen Enemy. But before we go to John, let's take a couple of questions. Gary Webster will be answering tonight's questions. Hi, Gary. What have you got for us tonight? Hi, Rebecca, and great to be with you tonight. And I agree that last night's program was absolutely amazing. Well, we've got three questions tonight. Let me share question number one. John shared predictions about Jesus and said they were made before he was born. How do we know they were made before he was born? Well, that's a very good question. The answer is found in the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. In 1947, these scrolls were discovered on the northwest edge of the Dead Sea. And we know from radiocarbon dating, from the style of the script, from coins that were discovered with them, that they date back to 100 to 200 years before the time of Christ. And they've got parts of the Old Testament, of all books of the Old Testament, except the book of Esther. Now, among those books, there are many predictions about the coming Messiah. So the book of Isaiah, the book of Daniel and others, they have predictions about the Messiah, or who was Jesus the Christ, way before he was born, at least 100 to 200 years. So we know they were certainly made before he came. Question number two, the prophecy of Daniel 2 was incredible, says this question. But how can we be sure the book was originally written in the 6th century before Christ? Well, probably the two most important things are these. In the book of Daniel, we have it written in Hebrew and we have some parts that are written in what we call Aramaic. And scholars have noticed very clearly that the type of Aramaic that's used in the book of Daniel dates back to the 6th century B.C., So that's the first line of evidence. Secondly, we notice that some of the stories in the book of Daniel show that whoever wrote them must have been writing them at the time that they were written about. How do we know? For example, when we go to the um, book of Daniel, we come to the fifth chapter and he talks about Belshazzar. And Belshazzar we know we now know, was indeed the last king of Babylon. He was ruling with his father Nabonidus. But it says at the end that of this story that Belshazzar said, you'll be the third ruler in the empire. Now, you see, scholars thought there's only one ruler in Babylon, and that's Nabonidus. But when they discovered tablets, clay tablets, which showed that his son was a co-regent, 
That's exactly right. You see, because when the king said you'll be the third ruler, he was really saying, dad's the number one, I'm number two, you'll be number three, Daniel. Now, he could only have written that about or known about that if he lived at those very times. So this is some of the evidence we have that this is certainly a sixth century book. So that was a a very, very good question. Last one. Why were rocks and mountains used for God's kingdom and not gold or diamonds? Well, that's a pretty good idea, isn't it? In the Bible, you see, rocks are symbols of a number of things. For example, the Bible talks about in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3, verse 6, it says, the everlasting hills, and he uses that to talk about the everlasting God. Hills were here today, they're here tomorrow. When everybody died, they're still there. So they were sort of like a symbol of something that goes on and on. And Daniel said that last kingdom was represented by a mountain that filled the whole earth eventually, you remember. And then there's another one. Mountains and rocks in the Bible were places of safety and security. Psalmist in eight, Psalm 18 verse 2 could say these words in Psalm 18 verse 2. God is my refuge and my fortress and my mighty rock. I run into him and I'm secure and I'm safe. The whole of Psalm 18 talks about God being a a rock, a place of security and of safety. And finally, rocks were places on which to build for a sure foundation. Remember Jesus told a parable once. He said a, a man built his house on the sand and it collapsed. Another man built his house on the rock and it stood firm. Well, the Bible uses the idea of rocks as places of stability. And Jesus Christ is a firm foundation on which you and I can build our lives. And finally, they are sources of life. Because when we go to the first book of Corinthians, Paul talks about the fact that when Moses was walking through the desert with the Israelites, he was told by God to strike a rock and water flowed out of the rock. And Paul says that rock, that represents Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was struck at Calvary and from his death flows life to all those who put their trust in him. So this is why a rock was used to symbolise God's kingdom. It had all those thoughts and pictures and imagery in the minds of the people of the Jewish faith. So very good questions that uh, you have brought to our attention tonight, and we thank you for those questions. Well, having seen the answer to those questions, let's go straight now to John Bradshaw. It's 2020, and we have a pretty good idea as to how people get sick and to a degree, to a degree, how people get well. But it wasn't always like that. Not much more than 100 years ago, heroin was being marketed as a treatment to treat coughs. In children in the late 1940s and early 1950s, Lobotomies were routinely practiced. The word lobotomy itself tells you all that you need to know. From lobos, lobe, part of your brain, and tomo or tome, to slice. Lobotomy, brain slicing. The man who originated the practice won a Nobel Prize, a controversial decision to say the least. Oddly enough, lobotomies were performed to treat mental disorders, but of course they did a ton of damage. 
I read where one writer said his mother had a, had a lobotomy when, when she was 33 years old. He said after that, she could no longer taste or smell. He said she drank like a fish and cursed like a sailor. And she said and did whatever entered her mind. Lobotomies are now thought of as one of the most barbaric mistakes ever perpetrated by mainstream medicine. At the time, we thought they were good. It was once thought that bloodletting treated illness. It was thought long ago that being ill meant that there was an imbalance, an imbalance in the four humors in the body, as they were called. Humors. Blood, phlegm, black bile and yellow bile, whatever that is. Letting out some blood was thought to bring balance back to the body. George Washington, first president of the United States, asked for bloodletting to be performed on him in 1799. Doctors took almost four liters of the president's blood. Not sure if you realize that's almost a gallon. Unsurprisingly, he died not long after. You see, we had funny ideas once about what caused illness. That's because of things like culture and tradition, and the fact that we didn't have electron microscopes or computers or Google. In fact, until the end of the 19th century, it was thought that diseases such as cholera or even the Black Death were caused by something called miasma, bad air coming from a rotting organic matter. But slowly over time, medicine caught up with the idea that diseases spread by germs. In the 1860s, Louis Pasteur conducted a series of experiments on the relationship between germs and disease. As a microbiologist, he believed that many diseases were spread by tiny organisms invisible to the naked eye. He disproved the theory of spontaneous generation. What is spontaneous generation, you may ask? Well, it's the idea that little creatures such as fleas or maggots just simply came into existence out of dust or dead flesh. Just came out of nothing. And that was good science once upon a time. It's no surprise people used to believe that, as unlikely as it sounds to us today. Without microscopes, how could they know otherwise? And if you're not looking for something, you're not going to find it. But Pasteur looked, and he found, and he's regarded today as one of the fathers of germ theory. He wasn't the first to propose the idea But he developed the idea, brought it into the public eye and into general acceptance. Pasteur was convinced that there were little things that couldn't be seen. He said the fact that we can't see them doesn't mean they're not there. That's how pasteurization came to be. He believed that microorganisms caused things like milk to spoil. Microorganisms. And he believed these tiny micro is, he believed microorganisms caused people to spoil. He believed and he proved that something you cannot see can do great damage. Something you cannot see could spread disease. But now we believe that, don't we? We believe in germs and viruses. That's why we wash our hands. It's why we don't appreciate people coughing or sneezing in our space. It's why we are grossed out, shocked even by those videos that show how far droplets spread. We've come to believe that our health is affected by things that we are unable to see. So let's consider the times in which we live. We understand viruses now, little things that avoid detection for so long because we cannot see them. But I'm going to take you a step further. Let's look into the spiritual realm. I'm going to start there by sharing with you a parable, a story told by Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago. Look at the story. You'll find it in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 25, we start in verse 24. We will read through to verse 30. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, 
The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheats and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, this was no joke. The weed was most likely bearded darnel, lolium temulentum. When it's young, you can't tell the difference between the weed and the seed or between the weed and the wheat, I think is what I wanted to say. So it was a nasty thing that was done to the landowner. And the stuff is poisonous. You wouldn't want to eat it. Dangerous. Let's look at this story. Something awful was done. Something noxious was sown. And Jesus said, an enemy has done this. Okay, think with me. You've likely heard all manner of explanations regarding the origin of the coronavirus. You have heard it was developed in a lab in Wuhan, China. You've heard it had something to do with bats. You've heard that 5G wireless communications technology is linked to the coronavirus. People have vandalized 5G towers. You've heard that Bill Gates is tied up with it all. Now, my point isn't to tell you that these things are right or wrong. I think you can figure that out. Although I think we all know that wireless towers transmit wireless signals and not viruses. But my point is this, or should I say Jesus' point is this. Behind sin, behind ruin, there is an enemy, an unseen enemy. Behind every virus, behind every fatal accident, behind every death, there's an unseen enemy. And we can say an enemy has done this. A lot of people are seeing stuff and looking for explanations in the wrong places. 25 years ago this month, April 1995, the Alfred P. Murrah building was targeted in an attack in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. It was a disaster. 168 dead, including 19 children younger than six years old. If you've not seen this memorial, stop and see it. It's powerful and moving. More than 500 people were injured. The president at the time was President Bill Clinton, who labeled the perpetrators of this horrific crime as evil cowards, except that in some minds, evil doesn't exist. Some will say the idea of evil does. But evil itself, it is said, a myth we've created about ourselves. One author, an atheist, says that the concept of evil is not only a meaningless concept that adds nothing to an understanding of human behavior, but he says it's also a dangerous one because it obscures possible understanding of events. In other words, there's no evil. A couple of days ago, there was a tragic chain of events in Nova Scotia, Canada. This is a beautiful Nova Scotia sunset that you were looking at. A columnist in the Toronto Sun described it as calculated and evil stuff. President Ronald Reagan labeled the Soviet Union an evil empire. George H.W. Bush, President Bush, spoke of 
the axis of evil. I'll ask you this. Was Adolf Hitler evil? Some people, including some neuroscientists, say no. Now, I'm not asking if everything about Hitler was evil or if people could or could not be redeemed. But do we see evil there? And if it do, if we do, where does it come from? Where do viruses come from and car accidents and murder and cancer and racism and terrorism? Where do they come from? Where does ethnic cleansing come from? Jesus said, an enemy has done this. The challenge with trying to look behind the scenes is that we come at this with some preconceptions and we run up against some hard questions. Questions we can answer, yes, but questions that turn some people inside out. And here's one of those questions. This really is the big one. How can there be a loving and omnipotent God if that God still allows evil in the world? If there's evil and if there's a God and if they co-inhabit this world, then God evidently cannot stop evil and God therefore is clearly not omnipotent. Now, this isn't just your neighbor asking these questions. These questions aren't being asked by dummies. Stanford University and other very respected institutions of higher learning ask and wrestle with these same issues. We're going to work through this one. We know that the Bible says that God is love. We know that. Most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, says that God so loved the world. God said through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, I have loved you with an everlasting love. So we see here that we've got a loving God on the one hand and death and mayhem on the other. How can we recognize these two disparate concepts? I think we can. We struggle with our own sense of justice or right and wrong. You see, when a second grade teacher is killed by a drunk driver, we, we, we just can't get our minds around that. A child develops cancer and we think that's just not fair because it isn't. The tendency is to blame God. Where was God? After all, he's all powerful. Surely he could have stopped that car from running a red light. He could have stopped that man with the gun or guns. A couple of years ago, one man armed to the teeth killed 59 people in Las Vegas. More than 400 others were injured. Where was God? Could God not have allowed rain to come before the crops failed owing to drought? The question is, why did God not stop these things? Okay, we're thinking. You go to the beach and you might see flags warning you not to swim in a certain place because there's a dangerous undercurrent or rip. You can't see it, but beneath the water, there's a strong current that could take hold of you and drag you far out to sea. The danger is there, but you can't see it. It's hidden. It's hidden in plain view. If you really want to know where COVID-19 came from, I'm about to tell you. Let's go back to the beginning and let's be sure we consult this book, the Bible. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the world was good. No one got sick. No one got drunk. There was no domestic violence. There were no cemeteries in the world then. The plan was 
that Adam and Eve would live forever. Genesis 1.31 says, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Very good. But we know what happened. It was the oddest thing. We pick it up in the third chapter of the Bible. We read this. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The serpent tempted Eve to eat the fruit that grew on the knowledge, no, grew on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did she do when tempted? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And how did that play out? One chapter later, one chapter, now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. So we have death in Genesis 4. Six generations later, same chapter, then Lamech took for himself two wives. Now we have adultery. The name of the one was Adar. The name of the other was Zillah. Four verses later, same man, Lamech says, Adar and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. The wheels fell off pretty quickly. Genesis 6 verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 11, The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. In fact, the same chapter says, The Lord was sorry that he had made men on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So why did all this happen? Here's why. Look back with me in Genesis 3, 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Notice what God said. Because you, Satan, have done this. God identified the cause of the trouble. And enemy had done this. God identified that enemy. Okay. Where'd this enemy come from? Well, the answer is the last place you would imagine. The Bible says, and war broke out in heaven. This is Revelation 12, starting in verse 7. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. You would not expect there to be war in heaven. That's almost incomprehensible. We don't know exactly what kind of war this was. Not likely a war with guns and violence, more likely a war of ideas, a political war a whisper campaign that became a smear campaign. 
But there was war there in heaven, disruption. So why? Why? Why war in heaven? Well, if you go to the book of Isaiah and open it up to chapter 14, you find God tell us why. Starting in verse 12. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I, Satan said, will be like the most high. Ezekiel sheds a little more light on this. He says, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. For reasons I don't know that we could ever understand, Lucifer wanted to sit in God's place. I, 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 he wanted to receive worship. That's what the record says. When he wasn't able to receive worship, he rebelled in heaven, was evicted, then came to the earth and proceeded to introduce mayhem to this planet. And he was successful. He need not have been. But Eve made the mistake of choosing to ignore what God had told her. You'd expect, wouldn't you, that God would have warned Adam and Eve, gave them all the help they would need by telling them, don't eat the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But when the heat was on, Eve forgot or she chose to forget God's plain counsel. She no longer yielded to the will of God. And as a result, sin entered the world. Sin brings death with it, Romans 6.23. The reason being, according to the prophet Isaiah, is that sin separates a person from God. Life is found in God. You pull the plug on the toaster from the wall, no toast. Separate from God, no life. It says of Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, 6. When God appeals to us and pleads with us and warns us, he does so because he's a loving parent. You tell your children not to play on the road because you care about them. Don't touch that hot thing. Stay away from the neighbor's angry dog. Don't climb on that thing. It isn't because you're wanting to ruin your kid's life. You're trying to enhance it. Parents know what's best. God knows what's best because ultimately you are going to listen to one or the other of two voices. So now we know why there's trouble in the world. An enemy has done this. First, induce the human family to not trust fully in God. Then slowly but surely lead them further and further away from the will of God. In your lifetime, you have seen colossal changes in society. It wasn't long ago and the Bible was widely accepted as valid and containing important guidance, vital guidance for society. We printed In God We Trust on our money in the United States because we by and large believed that. But the Bible's been under attack in recent years. 
Now even many theologians describe or deny the plainest teachings of the Bible. No, I don't know either why they're employed as theologians. Why is that? It's because the devil is campaigning, working to undermine God's authority. It's fashionable to think that faith in God is for the simple-minded. And of course, nobody wants to be thought of like that. I spoke with the PhD and asked him about faith in academic circles, the circles in which he moved. He told me this. He described himself as a recovering atheist. He said, peer pressure. When everyone believes in a certain way, in this case, that God doesn't exist, then you learn to go along with that way of thinking or else your career prospects might suffer. It's exactly what he told me. Just think about how the world has changed in only the last 20 years. The prevalence and the availability of sin. Church attendance declining in many, many areas. The number of atheists and agnostics and nothings going up and up and up. It's the result of a deliberate campaign to undermine faith in God and separate people from God. Evil exists in the world and and it really does because the architect of evil is determined to do lasting damage to this world and to the people in it. People God loves. He wants you lost and hopeless. So we have a situation in the world where there's an enemy hiding in plain view. Everyone sees the problem, death, disaster, disease, but our tendency is to think that this sort of thing just happens on its own without there being something going on behind the scenes. You know, when the stealth bomber was developed, it was a big deal because because of, well, because of stealth, low observability. And if you've ever seen one of these magnificent machines flying, and you might have if you've been out near Whiteman Air Force Base in western Missouri where they're housed, you'll have seen that the stealth bomber blends in with its background. Its surface absorbs radar, making it difficult to detect. It cleverly minimizes the amount of heat it gives off. Part of the stealth bombers or parts of the stealth bombers are covered in advanced radio-absorbent paint and tape. And because of the way the plane is shaped, radio waves bounce away from the place they're being sent from rather than right back to where they're coming from. They're incredibly engineered. The whole point is so they're not easily detectable. They can be right there and you can still miss them. Let me give you another example of stealth, a little different. The Underground Railroad was established to help enslaved African-Americans escape into free states or Canada. It's being suggested that in all, well over a 100,000 people escaped via the railroad. Of course, the Underground Railroad wasn't underground and it wasn't a railroad. It was described as being underground because people who disappeared into it were just gone like the earth had swallowed them up. Probably the best-known figure associated with the Underground Railroad, Harriet Tubman, responsible for helping more than 70 individuals to become free. It operated right out of the heart of slave states, right under the nose of the fugitive state uh, slave law, transporting those looking for freedom between 10 and 20 miles a day, most days. It was happening right out there where it couldn't be seen. You can hide things in plain view, you know, The devil's done a masterful job of hiding himself and blaming God for everything wrong in the world. So why doesn't God just stop sin? Well, for one thing, you need to remember that God does already prevent more calamity than we could even know. But imagine if God just stepped in and said, no more sin, no more evil, no more accidents. I'm stopping it all. Now, someone's thinking, where's the downside? Oh, no. 
God loves you too much to do that. Mm. In order to stop drunk driving, God would have to physically prevent people from buying alcohol and from making alcohol and from selling alcohol. God would have to remove that from every human being in the world. In order to stop most cases of lung cancer, God would have to do the same with tobacco, get rid of it. In order to stop racism, God would have, God would have to do what? What would he do? Well, whatever the magic solution would be for that, it means that God would have to stop someone from thinking their thoughts and committing their actions. That's not what God does. And you don't want God to do that. You know, God gave humanity freedom of choice. He made us in the beginning free moral agents. It's why God says in Isaiah chapter one, come now and let us reason together. He could have said, you sit there and listen to what I say and just do what I tell you. But God doesn't say that. Do you really want God to remove freedom of choice from everybody alive? You wouldn't be a free moral agent then. You'd be, you'd be a robot. You wouldn't have a mind of your own. You wouldn't have freedom slavery would be back, except it would be worse than slavery because in this case, the slave master would be omnipotent. I want you to see where this is going. By the time Jesus came to the earth, the devil was even trying to separate Jesus from his father. You might recall the story when after Jesus was baptized, the devil visited him in the wilderness and said, command that these stones become bread. Jesus answered with a line I like an awful lot. He started by saying, it is written. See, those were very good words. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Satan tempted him again. Throw yourself off this pinnacle of the temple and the angels will catch you before you hit the rocks down there. And Jesus answers, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. But watch the third temptation. Again, the devil took him up uh, on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Do you see that? It's that desire for worship, which explains what we're seeing in the world today. An angry, fallen angel, desperate and determined to get on earth the worship he wasn't able to get in heaven. And let me just pause a moment to say this. When you get over into the book of Revelation, the Bible speaks about the devil in earth's last days and says that all that dwell upon the earth will worship him. So you see what he's doing, separating us from God so that we lose our faith and our trust in God, so that we decide that God is a maniac who floods the planet just to kill people and get a thrill. And we turn away from God and follow after the enemy. So no, murder isn't God's doing. Don't blame God for that or starvation or for injustice and enemy has done this. You want God to step in and stop it all? You're asking that God take away your free moral agency and make you a robot. Satan tells us the same lies today as he told Eve in the Garden of Eden. You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Did you see that? He says, God is keeping something from you. God isn't fair. 
Today, we still have freedom of choice, but look around and you can see a lot of people aren't exercising that freedom in harmony with good common sense or with God. You're free to drive a car. With that freedom comes the responsibility to drive it appropriately. Don't drive under the influence of alcohol. Do obey the road rules. You can fly a plane, but we're hoping you won't fly one into the side of a building. You think it was risky giving human beings freedom of choice? Well, not if they surrendered that to God. But what was the biggest risk? You see, everything would be fine unless something went wrong. And what could go wrong? Sin. And if sin happened, what then? Look at this. In the book of Revelation, we read that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That means that heaven was prepared for sin. If it happened, Jesus would come into the world to die for sin so that sinners could live. The one who assumed the risk in this thing was God. God would have to give the most. God would be separated from a son whom he had been with since eternity past. God would have to clean up the mess we made. He'd have to bear our guilt, our shame. He'd have to watch his own son be treated indescribably cruelly for things that he never did. In fact, Jesus came to the world to demonstrate love and he received hate in return. He came to bless others and they nailed him to a cross. He gave his life for a world that rejected him. Don't forget even for a moment what God did. Woman taken in adultery, Jesus forgave her. World was destroyed in Noah's day. God had given them 120 years to repent. Jonah went to Nineveh with a message of judgment. Y'all are going to be destroyed. Nineveh repented. God took a different course of action and Nineveh was not destroyed. Nineveh was profoundly wicked. I'm not even going to tell you what the Ninevites got up to. David was a murderer and an adulterer and a liar. God forgave him. Manasseh was so wicked, you're not going to believe it. Sacrificed his own children to pagan gods, yet you will see Manasseh in heaven. What we have in God is a merciful God, a loving God who showed that over and over again. Look at the cross. Look at Jesus on the cross. And you think God made grandma die? In November of 1975, a massive freighter called the Edmund Fitzgerald, which was named after the chairman of the board of the company that owned it, It sank during a terrible storm on Lake Superior. The ship was carrying iron ore pellets, thousands of tons. It was the largest ship on the Great Lakes. When she went down, all 29 crew on board died. A month later, the Canadian folk singer Gordon Lightfoot recorded a song called The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And in that song, remember, it's about men perishing in a shipwreck in a terrible storm. Lightfoot sings... Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? Listen to that question he asks. Where does God's love go at a time like that? What happened to the love of God that this tragedy could happen? You get the implication. And that belief has been drilled into our minds. Where did the love of God disappear to at a time like that? Of course, God's love is constant. The presence of a tragedy is not a reflection on God or on the love of God. It's a reflection of the fact that we are caught in a battle, a spiritual battle in this world. God is love according to the sacred record. That's always true. 
There's an enemy who wants you to think otherwise. Remember what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesian church. He wrote, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places. He says, there's a spiritual war going on. It's serious. We are in the fight of our lives. What we're looking at is a great conspiracy. You've heard the conspiracy theories that float around. I'm going to tell you about the biggest and baddest of them all. The greatest of all conspiracies. The conspiracy theory everyone ought to hear about because it's the one that can be believed a 100%. Satan has conspired against God. In this conspiracy, he's gone on an all-out attack against the character of God. He has rubbished God, denigrated God, criticized the Bible, blamed God for the very things that he has caused. And incredibly, most people have swallowed the lie. Does God cause hurricanes? No, an enemy has done this. Does God cause house fires and cancer and fetal alcohol syndrome? No, an enemy has done this. There's a battle going on, spiritual battle. Every few years ago, a country has a general election, most countries. You get to vote for members of parliament or Congress or Senate, or you get to vote for president. There's a presidential election in the United States later this year. You get to choose who you want to see in office. It's the same spiritually. There are two great powers in this universe, and you get to choose which power you want to align yourself with. Look, rather than sin in the world causing you to think God isn't good, it would be right for you to look at tragedy and say, this is evidence that the devil isn't good. Someone has hijacked God's world. Rather than running from God, rather than running from this great good God, loss and sadness and death ought to cause us to run to God. Get angry with God and you're upset with the wrong person. That's for sure. I remember being in a hospital counseling room 25 years ago, almost to the day. My father had been experiencing ill health. Still in his 60s, you'd think he was too young to die, but we don't always get to pick our time. I was there when the doctor said to my father as kindly as he could, I'm sorry, Mr. Bradshaw, there's nothing more that we can do. I looked at my father and he had this this look on his face. It, it was sort of disbelief mixed together with, I don't think I heard you right, doctor. My father asked a question I will never forget. He said, so you're telling me I'm going to die. The doctor had been asked that question a few times before. All he said to my father was, we'll keep you as comfortable as possible, Mr. Bradshaw. That was an interesting drive home. We all know that one day we're going to die. My father had just had his death sentence read to him. He was going home to die. My dad was a man of faith. He'd done his best to remain a faithful member of his church all of his life, and yet now he was going home to die. God did not lengthen his life sooner than anyone would have wanted. But I'll tell you this, my dad's faith never wavered, never, not even once did he blame God for his unfortunate situation. Never did he charge God with being unjust. Now, don't get me wrong, if if you or someone you know has a hard time receiving that kind of news, I'm not faulting that. Anguish is understandable. My father wasn't happy to hear this news. He was as disappointed as anyone, but he didn't see it as unfaithfulness on God's part. I've never forgotten that. His faith stayed strong. He turned to God for strength. He didn't turn 
on God. How are you doing right now? I know there are many people who are doing great. That's good. This this strange new world we're in is for some people just an inconvenience, maybe even a minor one. But for others, it's tragic. More people died today. More families are grieving. I heard today of several different healthcare workers who are heading into the teeth of the storm, going right onto the front lines to join the other other admirable people who are there treating the worst affected. Some of those people are very concerned. Their families are concerned as well. But the truth is God is good. He's always been good, always will be. But as important as knowing that is, entering into that is better. I take you back to 1975, Hobart, Tasmania, Australia, 9.30 at night, January the 5th, middle of summer in the Southern Hemisphere. An enormous cargo ship transporting iron ore hit a bridge, a bridge that went over the Derwent River, caused a 73-meter-long section of the bridge to collapse, 240 feet long. Four cars drove off the end of the bridge and plunged 150 feet into the water below. Two cars were left dangling over the end of the bridge, their occupants managing to escape with their lives. A man named Murray Ling was driving across the bridge and noticed lights on the bridge go out in front of him. He thought something's wrong. Then he saw the taillights of cars in front of him disappear as those cars plunged off the bridge. He braked as hard as he could. His car stopped just inches from the edge, but another car coming up behind him rammed him, pushed the front wheels over the edge, and there the car teeter-tottered. Mr. Ling and his family got out, and then they realized other cars were heading for the 150-foot drop, so he tried to get the drivers to stop. A bus filled with people skidded to a stop, crashing into the railing on the bridge. Two cars ignored him and raced past. One of them actually paused and swerved to get around him, drove around, looked at him like he was crazy, drove off the end of that bridge, and the occupants of the vehicles of the vehicle perished. He tried to save them. Some were saved. Others ignored the appeal to stop, the appeal to be saved. In fact, Jesus spells out the problem of the masses today when he says in John 5, verse 40, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Jesus came into this world to give us life more abundantly. That's what his own words said. I have come to give them life and that they may have it more abundantly. Now and in the future. You know, when this whole coronavirus thing is passed, over, done with, when the challenges that we're now facing are just a memory. What will your life look like then? When that kingdom we talked about last night or last time is set up, where will you be? Only God can save us from where this world is headed. Only Jesus can give you new life now. God is good. An enemy has done this. Let's pray that our hands will be in God's hands. Let me pray for you now. Our Father in heaven, We are grateful tonight that we can reflect on your word and see it's a faithful account of what's happened down through history. An enemy has done this. So guide us to commit ourselves to you. Turn us towards the good, the great God, and hold us always in your arms. We thank you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you'll be sure to get your study materials, get your questions to us, shared with you earlier how you can do that. And be sure to join me tomorrow night. We've got a great subject. Heroes in a time of crisis. Heroes in a time of crisis. Don't miss tomorrow night. More from Hope Awakens. Well, wasn't that incredible? 
You know, Rebecca, isn't it absolutely great to know that God is not to blame for all the suffering and the heartache that we see on our planet and that through putting our trust in Jesus and what he did in dying on the cross that we can be actually on the winning side in this great epic cosmic battle. I totally agree, Gary. It's such a comfort to know that having Jesus puts us on the winning side. What an awesome program. Remember, to get tonight's study guide or to ask a question, just go to our website, hopeawakens.com.au. Thank you again for joining us tonight. We'll see you tomorrow night at the same time for Program 4, Heroes in a Time of Crisis. 